I know it's not sexy or what we really want to hear, but it's usually not about your skill. I think a style is a cage for many people, that they feel that this is what I paint and therefore I can't paint anything else. Welcome to Not A Real Artist, a podcast by me, Tamara Sagadevan. And me, Iris Ritchie Cousins, discussing relatable creative topics with honesty and humour. In today's episode, we're going to answer all your burning questions. So strap in and make sure your airbags are working. Iris, we've officially reached celebrity status where people are asking us questions. People want our advice. They want to know how we do things. We're going to see ourselves in Heat magazine next week. (laughs) (laughs) So we asked all of you to send us your questions and uh, we got some really interesting ones, ones that I got very excited about wanting to answer. So for the next hour or so, uh, we are going to be reading out your questions and answering them, discussing them, seeing whether me and Tamara agree or disagree on our approaches. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah, and maybe we should add like a disclaimer. We are not doctors and any advice that you take is at your own risk. So Not doctors, not therapists. Not even real artists. Let's get into it with uh, question number one. So Maureen writes to us and says, I get paralyzed with a blank page in front of me. I probably am somewhat of a perfectionist and when I read my Somerset magazines, the online email, it all looks so beautiful and my work looks so ugh in comparison. Years ago, there was a local stamp scrapbook store that had wonderful classes where we learned new techniques and how to use supplies. I find that I buy supplies but have no idea how to use them. Can you like give us supplies 101 when and how to use mediums, gessos, paints, etc. And uh, somebody else called Kirschwin also sent in a similar question. Yeah, thank you. Are we going to thank every single person as we read their question? We'll probably spend most of the podcast saying thank you for your question. Consider yourself thanked, everyone. (laughs) That is a super interesting and very big question, actually. Supplies 101, we could spend a lot of time telling you what goes over what, but I think that is not necessarily my purpose um, as a human being or even as a teacher. I feel that the answer of just go and play around (laughs) is what I want to say, but I know that sometimes we're not asking for permission. Uh, Sometimes we're asking for instruction. So the The permission part, if you needed permission, Maureen, it would be go and play, go and mix everything with everything else, see what comes out. But the instruction part would be probably would be to build yourself a rubrics, um, something where you, oh, Iris, I don't want to talk too much. (laughs) Oh, my God, you're self-censoring. This is okay. So basically what Tamara is doing right now, where she is. talking about what you should do and then she goes like gets all up in her head and goes like oh no I shouldn't be saying this oh no I'm talking for too long no this is all terrible people don't want to listen to this this is exactly what you should not be doing when you are making art or wanting to play with your art supplies and no like I know sorry I'm putting you on the spot but like it's such a good example like I feel like you're exemplifying the thing that actually happens and that isn't that we sit down at our art desk either with inspiration from like a wonderful magazine like Somerset Studio or just with whatever we had trickling around in our mind we sit down and instead of just grabbing the thing that we want to grab and going for it we start thinking and we start kind 
of self-analyzing and annihilating and I don't know what to do. What I do isn't going to turn out as well. Am I allowed to do this and this? I don't know. So it's actually just such a good example. Like, thanks for leading by example (laughs) and being vulnerable and stuff, because that is what we do. And I think that is the biggest obstacle. And I know it's not sexy or what we really want to hear, but it's usually not about your skill. I think Mm. skill has very little to do with the type of art that we are here to create. We're we're talking about making art for self-expression, making art to you know, connect to ourselves or to switch off, to come back, to to reset, to work through feelings, that kind of stuff. Or maybe just to create something pretty or nice and to have had a nice time being creative. But all of those things, they get better and easier with skill, but they do not start with skill. The skill just comes automatically after the doing. The skill isn't required before we start doing. Mm. So I think that is one big point. And then the second point is that it's to acknowledge that it is difficult, especially when you are just starting out, to see things that you like and to feel like I am unable to make something that is as good as what my kind of rational brain likes and uh, it reminds me of this um quote or like it's like a long spoken piece by Ira Glass called The Gap and it's about how when we first start out we have good taste we can look at things and we can say like I like that that aesthetically pleases me but we don't have the skill to make that same thing happen for ourselves and what that creates is a big gap of disappointment where you kind of know what you'd like to achieve or how you'd like to uh, your things to look or what would satisfy you and yet you're not quite able to do it and that's actually really difficult and I actually think that acknowledging that phenomenon is actually really important in order to get over the fact that no at this point in time you can't really make the thing that you love uh, or think is aesthetically pleasing Uh, but that doesn't mean that you won't get there or that what it is that you're creating right now isn't valid and now I feel like I'm talking too much so you talk a little bit. I'm gonna stop uh, self-censoring I wanted to talk about a rubrics and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly but that's what I call what I do it's not enough for me to test supplies inside a sketchbook. I like doing that. I think it looks really pretty and you do learn a little bit about the material. But for me, it really is like hardcore experimentation, not as hardcore as I'm making it sound. So I just make a table and on one side, I will put on the X axis, I will put a blue paint, red paint, yellow paint. And on the other one, I would put like chopsticks or my palette knife. And that's how I I start filling in the blocks and seeing Out of these 20 little things that I tried, which three actually speak to me, lots of things will look the same. And that's like the practical way that I get acquainted with my supplies. I think I feel that things aren't supposed to be mixed, even though I'm a mixed media artist. Like I still have that thing. It's difficult for me to mix acrylic paints with other stuff because I sometimes feel like I'm a bit of an acrylic paints purist. But if I don't make those tables, I will never learn that soft pastel layers amazingly over acrylic. And that's my practical advice that I wanted to give you. And then I thought about, oh God, I'm going to say rubrics and nobody's going to know what I'm talking about. And I have rubrics, which I can, we can just put in the show notes. We can put a link to it. And that's why I stopped talking because I thought now it's going to sound like I want people to download my rubrics, which is just an Excel table. That's my practical advice. (laughs) 
I also think that that's really interesting because when you're describing this table that you create, and I think Kaylee Gray uh, had a similar thing in her book, in her Get Messy book, where she recommends that you do something like this. And I love it because it's like table spreadsheets. Less, yes, you're talking my language. But what I think that's also cool for is that it will allow you to uh, figure out what excites you. Because I think that it's so easy to put the cart before the horse. And it's basically saying, well, I like the look of that. So I want to create that. But I have, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, where if I focus too much on the result, then I might make something that I like aesthetically, but I might hate the process. And for me, figuring out those techniques that I really enjoy doing in the moment, because physically, tactilely, they speak to me and they, you know, they make me happy. It's really important for me to keep uh, engaging with those. Like you said, okay, sometimes stuff ends up looking the same, but maybe it doesn't feel the same. And that you will only know through experimenting and doing that when you apply the paint with a key card, it makes you happy. And when you apply it with a brush, it doesn't make you happy. I mean, that's just an example that kind of goes for my tastes. But you wouldn't know that if all you were going with was uh, what you wanted to end up looking like. So Exactly. This part where you said Ira Glass about the space in between. I mean, I do get intimidated sometimes, but I feel that the space in between where I am and where I want to be is like super inspiring because there's so much of stuff that's going to happen in between. So if you want to reframe, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so inspired right now. I just want to go paint. <laughs> The next question is from Carolyn. I hear some say, oh, they have to take time to soak their brushes. I clean them daily after I use them. Some are stained, but clean. Some have mediums that dried quickly and ended up in the wastebasket. How do you all take care of your brushes? Do you leave them in water as you work? Or, you want me to answer? You want to answer? Well, I'm like, I, I have answers for this question. I don't know if you're going to like them, but like, <laughs> I do have answers. So I am notoriously bad at taking care of my brushes. I stick them in water as soon as I've used them or I try to clean them as I go. But sometimes, you know, like life takes me away from my art desk. And then like two days later, I come back and I'm like, oh, shit, those brushes are still in the water. Uh so I, I I I genuinely try and I have some expensive or like quote unquote expensive brushes. They're probably not expensive in the grand scheme of things, but like they, I felt like I spent a fair amount of money on two sets of brushes. One was like uh, uh, hog acrylic brushes and the other one was a set of uh, watercolor brushes. And both of those I have tried really hard to take care of. Do you know what happens when I try really hard to take care of my brushes? It also means I don't use them. So my way of combating that is actually buying really cheap brushes so like craft supplies in the kiddie section or big multi-packs that are good value or on sale I will try to buy them so that I know that I don't have to take care of them if I ruin them I don't have to go like oh my god I spent 30 pounds on that brush maybe at some point in my life I will be able to like really use my brushes and also take care of them but right now I just gotta work with what I know my personality is um, so that's kind of like, <laughs> that's my advice. But also uh, I do have one very practical tip and I love the fact that I figured this one out. And that is, and I don't know if this is good for your brushes. So like, don't do this with your expensive brushes. But if I leave a brush and it uh, got dried up because I, whatever, walked away and forgot about a brush or like didn't, 
put it in the water or whatever. I use a surgical spirit, which is kind of like just like 80% alcohol. So you could use rubbing alcohol as well or something like that. And I put a little bit into a little plastic container. I swish my brush around in it and it literally dissolves the paint. And it's just, it's, it's magic and it's saved so many of my brushes that I felt like, oh my God, all this paint, acrylic paint is dried up. And acrylic paint is basically just plastic. So you've got plastic layer on all those brush bristles. It feels as if it will never come to life again, but just dip it in this strong alcohol solution and all of it just like starts breaking down. And then your brushes are pretty much good as new afterwards, which is magical. What about you, Tamara? You have advice? When I see somebody leaving their brushes in water, I feel so uncomfortable. Uh, when I see dirty paint water, I feel similarly uncomfortable. And it's not a judgment on the person. Like, you, you, I know you once, like, here's my container of dirty paint water. I do that so often. I'm like, I'm thinking of all the times in my vlogs that I've gone like, look, dirty paint water. <laughs> no, it's not like I think, oh, God, Iris. But I, it does make me feel uncomfortable because... I have a very different take. I understand that when people have expensive materials, it can be dif difficult to use them. But I feel when you're a beginner that you should always buy the best that you can afford because it will make your art experience much easier. When I started painting, I started painting with golden um, acrylics. I don't, I really use them now, but that's how I started. And I felt like it made, because I could afford it, it made my whole process much easier. I didn't have to work harder to cover stuff, etc. And it's the same with my brushes. I bought the best brushes I could afford. And because I was a beginner, I was quite careful with making sure they were cleaned. Now, there's two parts here. If you are spending more time cleaning your brush and if it's taking away from your flow, then definitely like go and get cheaper brushes. Or if you're, if you, like you said, you're scared to paint and ruin them, then get cheaper brushes because then the point is, the point of your art practice is being detracted from. But if you're okay with rinsing your brush into, like, I have a pot that I rinse in, and then I have a pot that I rinse in again, and then I paint. And at the end of the session, or at the end of the week, I wash all of my brushes, and I put them away. I change my paint water every day. And that's because I grew up not taking care of my things, because I felt that taking care of my things meant I was a materialistic person. And when I moved to Poland, um, Michał, my partner, taught me that it's okay to look after your stuff, that... When you take care of your stuff, it's not just because you care so much because it costs so much, but it's also because of the environment. It's also because of the fact that we have been conditioned to have this culture where it's like fast fashion for brushes or whatever you use. And that's why it like really is important to me to, to keep my tools. It's an extension of my hand to keep it clean. I wouldn't wipe my butt and not wash my hands <laughs> and then eat my food. Like that's kind of how I look at it. But I do know that it is a little bit of a like, it's not coming from a place of better than. It's coming from a place that because I started doing that since I was a beginner, it's much easier for me now. The other thing is I've seen a lot of judgment though for people who de do leave their paintbrushes in water. And I want to say to you, on some days when shit is going down, you washing your paintbrushes is the last thing on your mind and you need to chill and back off off of those people. So if you're a, a paintbrush washer purist like I am and you see, I don't know, brushes soaking in water for, for three hours of the lesson, it's not your brush, number one. Number two, it's not your business. <laughs> and number three, other people have other things going on. So like, unless you're going to go to their house and wash their brushes for them, back off. So yeah, yeah, that got aggressive quickly. But that's a really great question, Carolyn. And thank you, Iris. I liked your 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 little tip. I do want to say if you've got paint in the actual ferrule, so between the the, the bristles and the the metal part, that 
sometimes what happens is the alcohol will go in and dissolve the glue. If your brush is connected with glue and it could fall off, I've had that happen when I bought a really cheap brush, forgot about it and cleaned it, but it was a very cheap brush. But that is a super tip. You can also use a nail polish remover, but uh, if you get any chemical disease, like... Yeah, I found that a nail polish remover is a little bit more dangerous. With the plastic bristles? Well, yeah, exactly, because I've spilled acetone on my uh, work surface, and it's like one of those plastic work surfaces, and it, like, it basically just rubbed off the print on the, on my surface so it is definitely i i feel like the alcohol is safer obviously take care but to drink not to drink <laughs> shush <laughs> no it's it's safe like if you do happen to have a spill either on yourself or on uh you know your work surface in your mouth yeah oh tamara let's move on to the next question sorry okay hannah k draws asks how do I become like you? You have to understand that this question was addressed at Tamara. How do I become like you? We all want to know this. I love all the weird and crazy stuff you create, but all I ever create is cute effing animal characters. I like them, but I would love to create something edgy and unique. I know in one of your vlogs you said you didn't want to create cute faces anymore. Do you remember the specific moment that the one thing that made you do your first edgy painting? Sorry, I read that terribly, but you get the point. And she says, honestly, I follow so many talented artists on here, but you're so special. Um, I'm just like, I'm, the the, re the reason I'm reading it like this is because I'm trying to make tomorrow really uncomfortable. And also, Jamie asked a similar question, uh, basically about style development. I think that the way we can summarize these questions is like, when did the switch flip from cute to weird? And how can you attain that for yourself? That's such a good question. I love your art. I love how like nobody else is making art like you, Tamara. So tell us a little bit about like what what is that? Like why eggs, poos, mushrooms, grumpy cats? What? Like are you trying to make me uncomfortable today? Like I at first and then you continued. Stop with the the praise, please. I <laughs> I need to keep myself loathing at a certain level today. Please send more praise for Tamara to not a real artist podcast at gmail dot com. Thank you very much. You're not allowed to troll me through our own podcast like come on idols that's like you're not allowed to do that first way to become like me uh you have to go to south africa because i'm south african i think i've said it in another episode that i follow the fun that i believe that my life is short that i'm closer to death than i am to being born everybody is nobody's <laughs> some people might be born again but whatever that's a story for another day and it's all of those things that motivate me in that moment to try and be as close to what I want as possible. I've said it before, I needed permission. All that weird stuff was in me already. In fact, I went to Iris and I was like, I want to find my style. And eventually Iris came back to me and she's like, I actually think you have a style. And I didn't think that I did. And that was getting permission and just letting whatever it was come out. But the question, and it's not really the question from Hannah because it's like, how did you develop your style? How was your style developed? I think it's developed is a word that makes me feel afraid. And I'm re reaching to the other side here. Even in this podcast, I'm not the same person I was three months ago, three weeks ago. And when you say like developed your style, I think a style is a cage for many people that they feel that this is what I paint and therefore I can't paint anything else. When you feel that way, what's the point? Because art evolves. It's supposed to evolve with you. And I feel that 
we've been told there's two prevalent things in this community. One, we're not real artists. Or the other two, I need to find my style. And people don't know how to chase it. They're so desperate for it. When it comes in the doing, number one, comes from letting in or letting out what's inside. But number three, when you find it, like I said, you're going to become trapped by it. So I think we should all maybe focus a little bit less on finding our style and just more on just doing art. And if you want a practical tip, take one feature. If you're doing something that's really cute, I don't know, a cute dog, take the eye and what can I change in this? How can I make it look as weird as possible or like what, I, what I'm feeling? That might be by making it bigger or changing the color or putting some blood in the dog's eye. I don't know. But do that. And yeah, um, Iris, I think you 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 mimicked mind blown. So yeah, I think that what blew my mind is that you're saying ask a different question, or you're actually pointing out the flaw in the question of, and not just the question, but like the quest of how to find your style. Because when you ask it in that way, you are saying that style is something that you find, and then once you found it, it's found. It's like like discovering a rock, you know, and now you've discovered this rock and you can like display it on the shelf and it is just the rock that it is. But it's not because style develops. Style is not static. The body of work that you are creating, it evolves over time and it should evolve over time because that's what's interesting. And also you are changing over time like the like you said the person you are now is not exactly the same as three months ago it's not the same as three years ago you are developing and you're becoming more and more yourself in a way because I feel like that is the quest that we're all on it's like it's to be more ourselves every day and I think an online space social media makes this harder because on social media we get rewarded for consistency we get rewarded for posting regularly and consistently and we get rewarded for posting similar looking things we get rewarded both by the algorithm and we get rewarded by the people who follow us because when there is a cohesion and a consistency people are like oh yeah that's a piece by blah 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 you know I always envy those people who can very consistently create in their own quote-unquote style and you know their grid looks so nice and so cohesive and I'm like oh gosh I wish I want I I want that I wish I could do that but at the same time if I try to do that, and I do that sometimes, I try to work in a certain kind of like series or whatever, and like two paintings in, I get so bored. And then I'm like, oh, Iris, you failed at this again. You just can't create a cohesive body of work. You know, it just doesn't work for me. And I know, like, I know that I'm talking a little bit like, it's like, well, you're one to talk because obviously I do have a recognizable style, but I have a recognizable style just because I do a lot of art. And I'm still interested in exploring the things that I'm exploring. And I work with a certain amount of art supplies where there's a cohesion between kind of like what I did last month and what I did this month, because probably 60% of the art supplies are similar or the same because they're the ones that I've got around me. Yeah, I kind of feel like there's the, the style and cohesion is a product of just doing it rather than a conscious effort to create something that looks a certain way and the way that I know that I need to do this organically is that when I try to create work in my own style as in like when instead of working organically I'm working in like oh yeah I should put a thingy there because that is what Iris does I get really 
frustrated. Yeah, I feel like it's really unsatisfying. Like if I asked somebody, how do you find your style? And they said to me, well, just do more art. And also finding your style is not that important. It's like you said, we are rewarded for consistency. We are rewarded for being one thing. And the expectation is because everybody's recognizable, we should be too. But why do you want to be like that? I think it's rather boring that you could be stuck into something that you have to always paint. If I was an egg artist that I always had to paint eggs, I wouldn't want to paint it anymore. It's specifically because I think people don't expect it and wouldn't want me to do it that I'm doing it because I do what I want. Well, that's good. You want you need to do what you want. Well, I spent so much of time not doing what I want and it made me so damn miserable. Just ask yourself always is it are you painting the thing that you're painting because it's just the only thing that you know how to paint because that's what it was for me and the useful thing I think to do if if you enjoy my art (laughs) go and check my Instagram and look at what I was painting before I started painting weird things and you might be able to see I think I can you can I can say this for Iris too you can see a shift between the pretty and then more into her style and it wasn't with me I feel I feel it was a bit more like a switch But with Iris, I think it was a bit of a gradual thing where I saw your eyes changing on your portraits and you were having more texture and more grunge. So it's also a gradual thing, but not everybody is not everybody is posting their befores on Instagram unless it's got to do with weight loss. (laughs) yes yeah but also actually now that you say that about like my art and how it's changed I instantly start thinking about my therapy and about my um just my journey as a person because to me the art that I'm making is very much an extension of the things that I am grappling with and you know my 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 kind of my inside feelings that I process through my art like I don't know what the fuck I'm feeling I just paint stuff and then it comes out and then it tells me something and if you see how different my art was then it's because those are the things that I was that it's an expression of what was up then so like all of those closed eyes like I no longer have a, a a need to paint closed eyes but I did back then and it's about like you know giving yourself what you need um at the time of who you are right now so it is it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice to now start painting eyes that are closed but it was even though it was unconscious it's a part of your style because it was a form mm. of your personal evolution that's yeah. that's kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. Sometimes I start questioning myself. I'm like, oh, do I need to be painting this eye again? Do I? And it's like, but when I sit down and I start doing it, that's what comes out. And 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 I'm learning to question it less. So if I want to paint a blah blah blah, then that's what I want to paint. Like there's no, you don't need to look into it further than that. Um, because if you kind of go with the flow, if you go with the flow, if you go with where your interest leads you then I feel like you will always be painting the right thing. And I I also think actually this is important is that style is not something again that you find, but also style is something that you can only really recognize retrospectively. You know, you look at something and you're like, oh, there's a style there. But I don't really feel like that the style is methodically or consciously created it's just like you look at it and 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 then hey there it is and that's what people say to me sometimes they're like oh when I see you do something different I can still recognize that it was you doing it and it's like oh well that's really cool because that basically means that however I do things like the way in which I do things maybe the brush strokes or the 
supplies or the techniques. I don't know. They have a cohesion that makes people think, oh, it was painted by Iris. Well, that's great, but I'm not doing that consciously. I'm not making my art so that people can recognize that it was me who did it. I'm just doing it, trusting that <laughs> that I am me. <laughs> You can't methodically work on it. I don't think you can, but I do think you can prepare the soil and like that's or build the foundation, whatever metaphor you want to use. And I think that part you said about retrospective um, searching or analyzing, that is something that I would suggest to somebody. Go and look at 10 of your last paintings that were not instructed by somebody else or 10 things that you did in the painting that was a bit different, that was instructed by somebody else. And you might go and see, I, for some reason, like putting stripes everywhere, then maybe that's a part of your art style. I'm not saying it is, but maybe it is. So the next time you paint, hey, how about I incorporate stripes somewhere? And then it will kind of evolve. But just remember, again, because we went all philosophical, that's a bit of practical advice. To get philosophical again, the style is not the end goal. It's yeah. just uh, evolution. And I ha actually have some practical advice as well, and I touched on it. Uh, in, in my philosophical talking. And that is if you want the satisfaction or the payoff of cohesion, then work uh, in a limited, uh, with a limited amount of art supplies. So just pick, you know, 10 things like, and then always use those things. Like, so I'd say like two brushes, a key card, three colors, a, a, a crayon and a, uh, and a and a pencil or whatever. And then every time you sit down, just create with those things. And then over time, you can bring things in, swap things out. But it's like if you have some stuff that is always the same, then no matter what you're doing, whether you are painting one day, painting a cat and another day, painting a face and another day, painting a windmill, if you're using those similar things then you know a cohesion will occur it will it yeah. will just exist but it isn't a podcast about advice another cool thing to do when you're doing that limited supply thing is to paint six pages at once it will loosen you up and some you will be braver to do things on than others and some some mistake or some something you do is gonna it's gonna just catch your heart i think that's how you know when you're on the right track when you feel good about it not intellectually because you might not feel good about what you painted but with your heart Marilyn asks, you ready? Get your blush out. <laughs> Marilyn asks, or says, rather, you are so entertaining and addictive, Iris. I struggle with getting creative without watching another artist or brief lesson or following someone else's prompts and ideas for a page in my journal. Mine will probably end up looking totally different, but it's difficult for me to strike out on my own. I always feel like I need guidance or a nudge. Any advice or ideas would be appreciated for helping me over this hump. Since I retired, I am totally a self-taught dabbler looking for my niche, so exploring many different styles and following many different artists. Thank you. Why are you so addictive? Meth <laughs> Iris methamphetamine. <laughs> there must be a drug in the world called Iris. Write your answers to... Not a real artist podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Tell us about all the, the drugs you take. I know it was a question to me, but why don't you answer it? We have an episode that already has probably come out that speaks a little bit about loneliness. And I feel like this touches on that a little bit where it says I need that guidance or that nudge. And what I hear Marilyn saying, and Marilyn, I could totally be getting you wrong here, is that you feel that you shouldn't need that. And I would say, why? 
Like you go to a restaurant, you have an appetizer. Nobody's going to come and knock it out of your hand. And surely this is like an appetizer. It's something that is motivating you in some way to get to your end results or your the end of your painting. If you feel like this because you don't want outer influence, then I would suggest looking at the video you're watching and understanding what about it is is whetting your appetite. So is it the ambiance? Is it the music? Is it the fact that you're mirroring somebody's actions? So when we talk or when we watch other people, if they're moving their hands and gesticulating a lot, we might do the same thing. So you watching somebody else creating is pushing you to do that. Then if that's what it is, maybe you could make your own video and watch your own self and keep your process quite closed. But if you feel that you shouldn't be watching it because of should, like why should I need this, then I really would suggest you throw that shit away. There is no problem whatsoever by being inspired or spurred on or having your appetite churned up or wet, whatever you want to call it, by somebody else. I don't see a problem with it, but I don't know if that's the <laughs> that's the answer you want. Thank you, Marilyn. Okay, what do you think, Iris? I know you you're much you have uh you're probably gonna have a more gentle response. <laughs> I find it really difficult because I I share this feeling of like, when you said like, oh, you feel like you shouldn't need that. I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's me. I, I feel like that too. Like on the one hand, like I want to learn and watch people's lessons and get inspired by them. And then on the other hand, I feel like, no, I should just like lock myself in my art room and not have any input and for whatever comes out to just come out. And then I occasionally I'm able to do that but so often I'm not so often I find that I need a bit of creative input or a bit of company I think for me it's very much around company and around community and feeling like I'm not alone I don't necessarily because I do have my own established art practice and you know quote-unquote style I don't need necessarily ideas of what to paint but I do need a bit of hand-holding. If I show up in my art room and I feel so utterly alone, I, I can't really paint. It's too painful. So I need a bit of company of either, you know, like doing an art date with someone or putting a YouTube video on in the background. Um, I subscribe to Buy Bun on Patreon. And, you know, when I have an art session, I will often just put her on in the background. She's just like chatting about her creative life, showing us what she's up to. And I find that really inspiring. Um, and it just kind of like takes me out of my own critical mind a little bit and allows me to engage with that creative process that I know I've got in me, but it runs scared if it's if things are too quiet, I guess. If things are too quiet and all I can hear is my own thoughts, then those thoughts very quickly turn negative and, you know, then I, 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 I'm no longer able to create. So it's really about working with myself, working with um, what I know works for me, giving myself the gift of what I know allows me to be my best self and be the best artist and also to just kind of get out of my own way. Because sure, maybe in theory, the best art that I would create it, theoretically is the art that I'd create without any input. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that if I tried to do that, I'd make no art at all. So I'd rather still rather choose making art imperfectly with the help that I need over some theoretical perfect process that I am not able to put into practice. Honestly, that's such a 
a nice thought. It's exactly what I was thinking. I would rather have something from you versus nothing. And I don't, everybody has input. I don't care. Even in the morning, it could be your own input. If you're like me and you create generally in silence, it's your own input because it's your own thoughts. So input is everywhere. What happens to you on the street? Blah, blah, blah. What I wanted to ask is, we're social creatures by nature. So I don't get like this thing that's coming about where we need to create in a vacuum. Um, and you said it before, we can't create in a vacuum. We're social creatures. I If you spend eight hours a day creating or six hours, 20 minutes, so what if you need human company? Like really, honestly, yeah. so what? And I also just to come back to uh, Marilyn's question or her words, where she said, it's difficult for me to strike out on my own. I always feel like I need guidance or a nudge and I think that you picked up on it really well it's like I think that what she's saying is that she feels as if that's bad and that's something that she wants to change but what if we flip it on its head and say like okay so you've acknowledged that those are the things that you need and also acknowledge that those are things that you feel like you shouldn't need um and then how where can we go from there can you then say like oh hang on this is something I need maybe I can give it to myself yeah it's it's like literally like me beating down on myself that I can't reach the top cupboard without having a ladder. You know, I need a ladder because I'm short. So what? And Miha doesn't because he's tall. So what? Like, and I know that's a very difficult attitude for some people to have, but you need the help that you need and like treat yourself like you would treat your kid. You would never deny your kid. I hope not. The, the things that it needed to be the best version of itself, which is exactly what you said. I'm just saying it in a very uh, dumbed down way. No, I like it. I, I love your uh, your analogy of, uh, of of tallness because I think that you're taking the judge, the self-judgment and the emotiveness out of it. You're basically saying, compare this to something that you literally cannot do anything about. You cannot make yourself taller, except you can because you can stand on a stepladder. And that is exactly what you would do if you wanted to reach that top shelf and you wouldn't feel like there was anything lacking about you. You'd just be practically you know, giving yourself the thing you need in order to get that cup from the top shelf. And I think that um, if we can hopefully like take the emotiveness out of it and say like, well, that's just what I need practically, mm. um, then maybe we can give that to ourselves. Jeez, Dutch people at all, by the way, side note. Yeah, I, that's why I live in England. I get to actually be tall here. Sometimes people in the supermarket ask me to get things off the top shelf from them. And I'm like, have you seen my height? Like, are it's you not tall, that... Iris? I'm not tall. No, I'm not. But I am taller than average in the UK as a woman. I am not taller than average in Holland. I'm very short. <laughs> are you uncomfortable sharing your your height? Uh, I'm 164. And I'm actually like, I love the fact that I said I'm 164 because like literally 90% of our audience is going to be like, I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're five, you're five foot, you're five feet. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm five foot four. <laughs> Isn't That's... that right? Five foot four? Hang on a minute while I convert this using my converter. Hang on just a second. This is really important. Pause the podcast. <laughs> yes, I'm five foot four and a half. Okay, there you go. There you go. No, and other 90% of our audience who now know how tall I am. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to this question by Jackie. 
When and how did you reach the point of deciding that you were going to be professional artists rather than amateur practitioners? She put professional and amateur in quotation marks. Uh, I use the word professional and amateur as shorthand for what would be rather lengthy descriptors. Okay, that's really interesting. And then Lena asked a similar question and she asked another question as well, which I think is related. So I'm going to just read that. Lena asked, how do you learn if you're meant to teach or just make art? When do you become comfortable with teaching or the idea of it? So that's really interesting. So, you know, the the difference between quote unquote amateur and professional and, you know, what does that mean? So the reason that I added Lena's question about teaching to this question is because to me they are completely related because I didn't think of myself as a professional artist for a very long time but what I what was clear to me was hey I really like teaching uh, I really like kind of I don't know sharing the things that I've learned and I feel like I actually started teaching art way before I was ready way before I was in any way proficient I mean I still don't feel like I'm particularly proficient but if I look back at when I started teaching I'm like wow you know that was quite brave but the reason I did that was because I really wanted to like I, I teaching was actually a really integral part of my creativity and um, I also noticed this back when I was in high school that sometimes people would ask me to study with them and the way that I learned my own work best, like where the way I could study for a test best was by teaching other people, by explaining things to other people and through explaining it to other people, stuff became clear to me and it would solidify in my own head. So that is the reason I teach in a way is because it makes me discover the things and gives me the things that I need. So I don't teach because I've got it all figured out and now I'm bringing that out into the world. No, I teach because it helps me to figure things out. Because I did it that way, I started teaching before I actually felt like a legit artist. It's informed how I now feel more and more like a professional and legit artist. So um, I kind of went at it completely you know, arse about tit way. Like it was just completely like not a linear thing to do. And yeah, and this is also why I do things like vlogging. I, I just share because it helps me figure out my messy, weird and confusing creative process in life. Uh, not because, hey, here I've got this perfectly polished artist's life and like, isn't it cool of me to share how amazingly figured out everything is in my life? I knew that was the tone you were going for. <laughs> I I don't feel qualified to answer part of this question. This part about professional and amateur, because professional and amateur will be based on the person that is saying it. I think there is a world like definition or global definition. But to me, who is the professional, the person that paints uh, once a month and has it in the gallery or the person that paints every single day and puts their soul into it for 15 minutes? Like, I don't know. And I think people mistake it for like full time and part time. But like, that's also like a question that's really loaded for me. I think when people say professional to me, the reason I don't feel qualified to answer it because I immediately think of money. And the question is, like, are you making a living out of this? And if you are, then you're a professional. But again, living is so based on whoever you're talking to. For some people, living is being perfectly okay eating. I love baked beans. Eating baked beans 
every single day. Mom, I'm not eating baked beans every single day, but that's just for me. Someone else, it would be having a steak dinner. So I feel underqualified um, because I don't know what Jackie considers to be a professional. But with the teacher one, I feel a little bit more qualified to say that I always wanted to teach because I always liked teaching at my old job. The difference is I did not find it satisfying at my old job or when I was a Sunday school teacher or a youth teacher or anything that was ordained or mandated by a specific body. The difference here and why I love and adore teaching here is because when people come to you to learn, they want to. It's not because you have to teach them how to do these five modules of VBA. It's because they want to know how to paint something. And that is why it's a very satisfying thing for me now. And I was never, I will never, you will never be ready for anything. More and more as I get older, that's how I feel. Like you won't, even that presentation that you've practiced 500 times, you will never be ready for when the person in the front of the audience decides to fart really loudly. Like, are they implying that you're the fart or was it just an accident? By the way, true story. And you will never be prepared enough to know what to do in that moment. So I feel like when I read Lena's question, I feel that she's asking like about herself that she wants to teach. That's the 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 thing I'm getting. And I'm totally she's not here to answer or to say, yes, that's correct. But I feel if you're asking that question, then you are ready to teach because yeah. no person wants to just like teach. No, no, it's not a it's not a whim. And it's not a way to build, okay, it is a way to build your brand, but it's it's not something, it's something that a lot goes into. It's not just a thing that you do so that you can have another side hustle. It actually is a part of your hustle, if that yeah, yeah, yeah. makes exactly. sense. Exactly. And that's when I wanted to teach, it started with saying that statement for myself, I want to teach. And then I went out and I taught things like, you know, for free on YouTube, making videos. And it was because I wanted to, and not because somebody said to me, hey, Iris, I really like your art. Can you teach? Can you teach people how to do that? And I think that sometimes we're waiting for that. We're waiting for a gatekeeper to say, mm. hey, I um, I love what you do. Can you teach that? And I mean, that would be great. If that, if that happens to you, good for you. But that never happened to me because, like I said, I developed things through teaching. I didn't come fully formed with my art style, with my practice and with my process. And then, then I started teaching. I developed it through and alongside. So it was me who had to basically say, well, it's up to me to say that I want to teach. And then it's up to me to try and find those opportunities. And I also want to be really clear about it that most of the opportunities that I got, I asked for. I didn't get them given to me. I didn't, I wasn't asked to be teaching on this or that course. I asked Tamara Laporte for probably six years straight if I could teach on Lifebook before she invited me to teach on Lifebook. And I think that when you don't know that, you will assume that whoever is teaching or doing things was handpicked and was asked or some gatekeeper said yes i would like you to go and do that or would you like to go and do that and and the you know most of the time when you see people doing things it's because they decided to go and do it and that's not as sexy it's not as validating as being asked but it is 
what's necessary in order to, you know, get somewhere and get, you know, if you want to teach, then you got to go and teach rather than wait for someone to recognize that. There's something that I had in my old job that I'm trying to bring back into this now, because this is my career now, which is a saying by Mundy Kaling, which is, I never got anywhere without writing my own parts because she's obviously an Indian woman, a woman writer in America, and she had to make her own part. And that's what I want to bring more into this job because I've been getting those things where people are asking me to come and teach without me having to apply. And I thought that would be, I thought that would feel so amazing, but it doesn't, not for me. What it feels like is that I didn't do the work to go and ask and apply and somebody's come and now asked me to be on something because they saw me on something else. And I would so much prefer, I think, if I went and I said, like, this is my idea. Do you want in? But I also feel that if I did it that way, I would also feel really shit if I didn't get somebody asking me to be on it. I think it's just your brain choosing whatever that it wants on that day to make you feel like a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do want to say, like, write your own part. So if you are asking and nobody is responding for whatever reason, then make your own damn course. You can do it. It's it's mm. it's really not that difficult. You ask artists who are in a similar position as you who also want to do the same thing and start your own collective. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because I do think that sometimes we look up to people who have, in our view, have it figured out, and then we want to pick their brain. And it's quite difficult when there's that difference in, I guess, status. I mean, I don't mm. love using that word, but that but that is true. So like, if you're trying to pick the brain of someone who's already gone through this whole process, and you're like expecting free labor from them, uh, explaining how they did it all, you're probably not going to get a good response. But what you can do is get a little group together of people who want to achieve the same thing that you do. And some people will be slightly further along on that journey, and some people won't. And some people will do the work, and some people won't. But you don't know that in advance, but you get a little group together and you motivate each other and you have accountability together and you pick each other's brain and you are all energetically on a similar level and at a similar place in your journey that can work really in a really motivating way because then it's not like not just you doing it by yourself but it's also not you expecting for someone to swoop in and give you yeah. all the you know do all the work for you or give you all the secrets i mean there are no secrets but you know working on big courses like these is actually quite I, I love it don't get me wrong but there's a big part of there's there's a lack of freedom I sometimes feel it can be a little bit stifling and if you really value freedom you being able to say what you want and paint what you want to 300 people is going to be much more difficult to do to I don't know 176,000 people that's when you're going to have to be a little bit more mindful, especially of the person whose course you're on. If they don't like to say shit and if and this and whatever, that you also have to like tone down a little bit and just like rein it in. And I don't value that as much as I value being able to be myself. So just make sure that the, the people or the things you're trying to apply for, the things that you're trying to do, that it's not going to be like covering your true self. And I'm not implying that the things that I'm on are covering my true self, but there has been one or two things that I've done where I was not the right person. Uh, as much as I believe in woo-woo, I am not the, I swear a lot. I mean, nobody wants their spiritual leader to swear. 
I'm not a spiritual leader. So just kind of make sure that you know who you are as well. Are committed to finding out who you are. Yeah, I feel like you you can try. Like I have um I have taught and speak spoken on programs that are way more spiritual than I am. And sometimes it's a good fit. And sometimes in hindsight, I feel like okay, I actually didn't fit in there. But you don't really know until you've actually done it. I I agree with you. I. Now we're going to go off topic, but like spiritual in a sense where, you know, there's the pseudo spiritual like positivity thing. Yeah. And um, it like when it derails into that, like that's not for me because I feel that I have a very like long, deep spiritual lineage and I don't appreciate things being appropriated from my culture. So, mm-hmm. hey, if you <laughs> let's get aggressive again. No, yeah. let's move on. So um, this is a follow-up question by Jackie. Um, she says, as a follow-up to that question, which was the question about professional and amateur, uh, how did you deal with the voices in your brain battling over whether you were being egotistical, thinking you were worthy and capable of taking on this new role and the one that quietly supported your decision? So we're talking about like the inner critic. I feel like it's imposter. Yeah, an imposter syndrome. When Jackie says egotistical, I kind of like that because I think for me, it's not about who do I think I am or whatever. I have the strange sense of I am not humble enough. Like sometimes when I talk to you, I also use the word humble. And you say to me, I'm not humble. I'm just aware of who I am. Um, That's because humility is a big thing for me. So when I look at it that way, how did I deal with it? Well, why not? Like that's my 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 thing all the time. Like why not? So... If Tamara Laporte does X, Y, and Z, why can't I? What makes Tamara Laporte different? Is it because she put in the the work in the hours? Sure, I'll put in the work in hours too. But there's no difference between me and Tamara Laporte besides the actual metrics that she may have. <laughs> okay, the, you know what I mean. I'm talking about in sense of... You're, you're saying that like we have a tendency to look at other people and kind of um assume that they have some kind of god-given right that we don't like that they somehow don't feel imposter syndrome they don't like they feel like of course i'm allowed to do this and we feel like well gosh who am i but you know most people have this who am i but the drive that they have to do that thing that they want to do whether it is teaching or you know whatever installation art you know whatever is the thing if that drive is bigger and louder than the voice that says who are you to do this then you're going to go out and do it because you know yeah i think what i'm trying to say is if i say who am i then i will say well who is iris <laughs> because if if I can have that same thing for myself, why shouldn't I have it for other people? So who's Iris? Well, she's the same as as I am. Like, there's nothing, no offense, Iris, there's nothing special or different about Iris when I compare it to myself. So if Iris can do it, then why the F can't I? Like, that's how I deal with myself. And I know that not everybody is able to do that. And I'm not saying I'm able to do it all the time. But something that I'm really trying to cultivate in my life is if I'm spending 10 hours talking shit to myself, and I can't like get out of the loop, then I have to spend 10 or maybe 11 hours not talking shit to myself. So um, if I'm going to allow myself to say, this is why, this is not going to work, this is what's going to go wrong, all the the things, the, the catastrophes, well, this is what could go right, this is where it's going to go well. And the reason why I want to do that is not just because of like magic and calling stuff in, but because the reason we look for all this 
these bad things is so that we can be prepared for an emergency or we don't make decisions that hurt us uh, because we are wired to survive. But we are also wired to find opportunity. And when you think of all the ways it could go right or the ways that it is going to work for you as an artist, you are also going to train your brain to find those opportunities and those little things. It's going to come to you, not just because of magic, but because you are literally wired to look for what you were thinking about. Yeah, and I also just want to say that I do a lot of these things in spite of, you know, I don't go around feeling worthy and capable. Um, I feel practically capable of a lot of things because I'm not that intimidated by practical issues. So if I need to learn how to do something practical, then I can learn it. But emotionally, I don't feel worthy and capable of doing the things that I do. I don't feel worthy of vlogging. I'm like, who the Why do people want to like listen to you? Like, geez, just be quiet. Like, you don't need to be another video on YouTube. Jesus, there's already like billions. But so I don't feel worthy. Um, I don't feel worthy of having a Patreon. And yet I still do all these things because despite not feeling worthy, I I still want to do these things. And there is still part of me, like there's a small part of me that believes that it has value. It might not have value to like thousands of people, but it has value to, you know, a few dozen people. And and that's enough. And it has value to me because like when I, again, to give you the example of vlogging, like I do the vlogging in order to motivate myself, in order to keep going myself, because it puts me in a good mood and it makes me feel like I can be achieve things and be productive and that kind of stuff so it serves a purpose for me and then it's kind of like okay well once I'm on that train it's a little bit easier to not think so much about whether I'm worthy or capable Uh, if I start thinking too much about whether I feel worthy then I probably wouldn't do anything so I have to like ride on different trains in order to you know live my life and achieve things you know, the sense of unworthiness, I think it stems It stems from some one of these Abrahamic uh, religions that we are all inherent, inherently unworthy and undeserving and therefore like something that's unconditional comes and, and, and takes that away. But fine, maybe that is true. Therefore, we are all unworthy. So like, just remember, Iris is unworthy and so is Tamara. So if we're all unworthy, then no one is isn't or is whatever it is um but yeah make your vlogs make your stuff like ira said she adds value to like herself and to a small group of people i think it's a very good thing to keep in mind you do not have to be valuable to millions or thousands you need to be valuable first to yourself then maybe if you want to your family but it's a small group of people and i think we're all aiming for these uh lamborghini kind of lifestyles or i don't know these big studios Yeah, lacquer, nice. It's nice to have those things. But there's also, and I think you said this, that I don't know if you said mediocre. Uh, That's probably the wrong word. But there's there's so much of beauty and simplicity and the middle life. Yeah, I I was just thinking about Amy. Is it Amy McNee? We've mentioned her before, Inspired to Write on um on Instagram, and she said something recently about like you know having a medium life where you make a decent income and you like you're just average. Like that's not sexy. It's much more sexy to say, oh, I'm a poor, starving artist or I'm making millions and I'm driving my Lamborghini and I work one day a week. Those are the sexy things to say or like they're the extremes. Whereas what's in the middle, just the kind of like doing the work 
being medium, being, you know, like being able to like buy the milk at the supermarket or whatever, that is not so sexy. And yet it is so awesome in a way, like being medium is sexy. <laughs> I think you said it too. I think you had a a, a podcast on it and I, I haven't, I, I can't quote it, but I think you did do a podcast episode about like living a, a normal Mm-hmm. normal life yeah and that's what it is more and more as i get older i had well i've never really cared that much about the trappings of success but oh, there's no point i feel very phil- philosophical i just want a, f- a stocked fridge and nice toilet paper and that is really what else can you need in life right next question lena how do you decide what you're painting if you're painting every day how long do you paint every day how long should I be painting every day? Lena. Girl. I don't know. <laughs> Brave of you to assume that I can answer your question. <laughs> what I hear in this question, and I feel I feel like I'm analyzing everybody's questions and they're going to be like, oh, we're never sending questions again because she thinks she's a pseudo-psychoanalyst and whatever. I hear like when I see how long should I be painting every day, like that immediately like isn't a lot for me. Because it means that you already have a preconceived idea that what you're doing is not enough because you've seen somebody else's painting practice or you have some ideas, preconceived ideas about other people's painting practices. I'm going to be very vulnerable here. I've been going through a very tough time for the past two to three weeks. I have not painted a single thing. I am a full-time artist, meaning I do fuck all besides paints. I have a house to, I do housekeeping and stuff like that. It's something I have to do. We agreed to do it. But do you know how utterly shit that is when I don't have a full-time job or a part-time job and my job is to paint and I cannot paint? For me to come here and tell you, you should be painting for 15 minutes every day. You should be painting for six hours every day would be so inauthentic and such a bunch of bullshit. I feel that you should be painting according to your goals, but also remember that your goals are bullshit. <laughs> so paint, I think 15 minutes is a very easy thing to tell people because there's a low barrier to entry and it makes it more accessible that if I paint for 15 minutes, I might paint for longer than that. Uh, my barrier to entry is 25 minutes. It's the length of a, of a Pomodoro session. But for these three weeks, I couldn't even do that specifically. If I had to live by this, how long should I be painting every day? I would be in a deeper hole than I am am in right now. Um, So let go of that should. If your goal is to have five canvases in a gallery, you have the ability to do the calculations yourself and say, it takes me 20 hours per canvas. I've got three weeks. This is what I should do. That's a practical way. But if you have no end goal like that, then paint until you feel you don't need to anymore and do not regard anybody else's practice. That's my my very, sounds quite harsh the way I'm saying it, but that's my, my advice. Yeah. And also, I think that for me, I love routine. I love the safety that comes from having a routine, but I personally cannot paint every day. It just, it, it's too consistent. It's too robotic. Um, if I try to do the same thing every day, you know, the only thing that I manage to do every day is brush my teeth. Like other than that, I don't really uh, and eat. I can eat every day as well. <laughs> but if I try to say like, okay, I'm gonna like go for a walk every day, or I'm going to like do a stretching exercises every day, or I'm going to paint every day, those types of things of every day, it becomes a yoke and it becomes 
really stifling and difficult. And then, you know, and then I fail and then I'm like, oh, I didn't do the thing that I wanted to do today. And so for me, it's kind of like, it's more like, what can I do consistently over time? If I look back, do I feel like, yeah, I spent enough time doing that thing that I wanted to do or I didn't. Um, and and then it becomes much easier to be soft because it it's no longer like, oh, you need to do it every day for this amount. Otherwise you failed. It's more mm-hmm. like, Hmm, you know, did I did I feel like I did enough painting this week? Well, no, it's never this week because like I can like you, I can go weeks without painting, whether that is because I don't feel inspired or don't just don't feel like it or whether it's other practical things that get in the way. But if I look back, like maybe maybe I even have to zoom out so much more and say, did I feel like I painted enough this year? And then I look at, you know, the things that I painted and usually it's much more than I thought. Like I might have the feeling of like, gosh, I never painted. And then I look at all the things I painted. And I'm like, gosh, I painted quite a few things, you know. You said it once, you said consistency over time. And that really stuck with me, you know, and that's a it's a really healthy way to look at it. It's not about whether I did 5,000 steps every single day. Some days I did 7,000. So on an, another day... Yeah, 5,000 steps, guys. You know my my step goals. (laughs) You said 5,000 steps a day. My step goal every day is 6,250. And I just want to say that because I know that they say, you know, quote unquote, like you should walk 10,000 steps Mm -hmm. every day. If I set my goal at 10,000 steps every day, I would fail most days. So my goal that I know is right for me is 6,250 because I can make that most days. And then some days I can do 10,000 thousand and on some really amazing days I can do 14,000 and it's kind of like setting yourself up for success based on you know your life your energy levels Mm. your kind of what you know you can achieve and maybe it pushes you a little bit but if you try to push yourself too much and according to metrics that don't belong to you then you know you're setting yourself up for failure so yay for having a step total of 5,000 and yay for me for having a step total of 6,250 because it's achievable and you know and that's all that matters Thank you for sharing your step goal, first of all, because I was thinking, oh, shit, now people are going to know like how really sedentary I am. But now that you've actually expressed it, and it's the same with painting, when you said you don't paint for three weeks at a time, like that felt really nice to me to hear. I used to paint every single day, or that's what I'm used to, to painting every single day. But like now it's it's just difficult for me. That's the the reason I think why we also do this podcast. It's about sharing like authentically and not like giving people the impression that every day we're um creating and kicking kicking doors down and whatever. So thank you for that. And maybe if we share like this more honestly, then people might not actually care about how long they should paint every single day because they'll realize because they will realize it's a fallacy. It's not it's not real, yo. There is, if you're doing something every day consistently all the time, like I do know some people have routines and and I have routines because of uh, ADD or ADHD or whatever it is that needs you to have something that's repetitive to do and you can do it, great. But we're not machines and it's impossible to, to, to replicate the success every single day. Cool. Lena, boom, roasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what will be our, our next podcast will be roasting. <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh, we've been talking for a while. So uh, we have arrived at the last question that we have time for today. Uh, and that is this one by Cal Animates, who says, Hi there, awesome people. Uh, I want to know about the work that goes into creating your epic podcast. Can you share your secrets? I surprisingly have been asked this question three times. Even though podcasts have been become more famous, like everybody and their grandmother has a podcast, it still, I think, feels a little bit sacred to someone. You know, like being on a radio show or having your own TV series. And I think that vlogging and podcasting has made radio and TV a little bit less sacred or untouchable. Whatever you think is difficult about a podcast, like the technicalities, if, if you're not comfortable with tech, it's not that hard. There are parts of it that I really hate. I'm going to be honest, but there are parts of it. The parts that I love far outweigh anything that I don't like. If you really want like tech advice, Cal animates, like hit me up. We, I'll give you the programs we use. Uh, most of the things we use are free except the editing software. So the technical parts of it is just, it's, it's, it's really simple. It's not that difficult. The difficult part is the actual conversation. And I don't mean difficult in the sense that I don't enjoy it. I mean, like what I did earlier in this podcast, the self-censoring, that is the most difficult part for me where I talk and I'm like, nobody actually, like nobody wants to hear from anybody. But if I'm in a room with Iris, nobody wants to hear from me. They would rather hear from Iris. And it's not just because of other people's perceptions, but it's also my thing. I don't care about my answer about something. I want to hear you talk. And having to learn that what I have to say is actually important and there is even though I meander and I derail the conversation and I make jokes in the middle of it and I'm not I'm not articulate I'm more interested in communicating a message and I don't always get that across when I realize all of those things about myself that it's not something to to hate on myself about but it's actually just part of what makes me me it becomes easier to kind of self-censor a little bit less so I'm not there yet but that is the hardest part of the podcast I won't talk about the editing because I dislike editing so much I hate it but that pain is okay uh, when the episode goes out and it's received really well and it resonates with a lot of people and then I'll stop talking in a second Iris but the second thing that is very difficult is the version of myself that goes out. I would like it to be as unedited as possible, like in order to, I want, yes, I want to curate the version of myself that that is out in the world, but the fact that I can end up or appear on the internet potentially to be seen by billions of people with my hair all messed up shows that I don't really care about appearance or the way that I sound as much as I should. And that should, I'm putting it in inverted commas. So when what's difficult is when an episode goes out where I don't feel like I've done my best thing, it's very difficult to let go of that and see that there is value in the episode. It's just that I sound like a dickhead. And the analogy I like to use for all you rap heads out there, because I'm quite sure we have 5 million hip hop fans listening, is there is a hip hop verse or there's a, there's a verse in rap by Nicki Minaj called Monster and it is just one of the most epic verses of rap ever. But when she rapped that verse and Kanye West uh, heard her, oh, Kanye. <sighs> anyway, when he heard her, he almost considered not putting her on the album because her verse was so great that it almost made the rest of his album look really shit. 
And I think that's what I experience with you sometimes that I say something and it makes sense and it's good. But everything that you say makes me sound a little bit dumb and, and like I'm full of shit. That's how I feel sometimes. And it's about saying, hey, this is not about me, though. I'm OK with being dumb because I'm dumb by nature. It is about the people that are going to listen and it's about the value that they're going to take from that. And it's a really it's a bit of an ego thing. And that has been, I would say, the, not the second most difficult, but maybe the fifth most difficult thing. But it's the thing that comes to mind right now. I'm going to stop talking because then that whole dumb thing is going to self-fulfill. Yeah, but the thing is, it's really good then that like I'm the one editing certain episodes because you would cut out things where you are thinking about yourself, oh, that's dumb. And I'm like, oh, you just blew my mind. You said something so wise and amazing. You know, I'm going to be thinking about it for the rest of my life. And so, you know, you're not the best judge about mm. you're not always the best judge about what you say yourself because you are self-conscious and I don't just mean you Tamara I mean like one is self-conscious and we're not always the best judge of what it is that we're saying and what value that it brings to other people and yeah so I think you're you're mainly raising the emotional obstacles about uh, recording a podcast and creating a podcast and I definitely agree with you that those are the biggest obstacles that practical stuff you know you just you make it to do lists you figure things out you google shit but it just like very briefly we use acast uh, that's the platform that we use to to put our podcast out there it links up with the uh, big podcasting platforms like apple podcast spotify what else like audible stuff yeah. like that so it it links in automatically so that you only have to upload it in one place and uh, then it goes automatically to these other places as long as you've linked them up so that's one of the practical considerations we use Zencaster to record our podcast so the actual you know when we are talking you are hearing us talking right now we are recording that into Zencaster which is an online platform and uh, for the purposes that we use it it is free same with Acast that's free as well all of these platforms have paid options of course as well but you don't have to use them if you don't want to for the editing of the podcast uh we use premiere pro which is not a professional audio editing software it's just for me personally it's something i'm so familiar with because of editing my vlogs that for me it's actually easiest to edit in that program and that is actually one of the tips that i would give if you want practical advice from me is that if you know something then use your skills in that and don't feel like you need to have some special skills learn only what you need to learn don't feel like oh I can't do a podcast because I don't know x y and z like it's usually only very incremental things that you need to learn you don't need to all of a sudden start doing a six-month course on audio editing uh, in order to be able to you know do something simple you can you know you can start simple don't make it complicated oh and can I just tell you what I hate <laughs> I don't hate editing. I hate marketing. Okay. That was my dog. <laughs> yeah, Felix agrees with me. Marketing is shit. I don't know because I feel like I may but maybe that's because I don't do marketing. I just like it's there, it's not there. Uh, yeah, okay. I hear you though. If I had to market market market, I it might feel a bit yeah. And also, you know, the thing is, is like if I did this podcast by myself, I think I would lose steam. But because we can kind of like we collaborate and you do things and I do things and like, you know, I, I, something will occur to me and I send you a message and I'm like, oh, can you do this? Or you say to me, can you do this? It really feels very kind of like, you know, like um, 
I'm just thinking about one of those cartoons where you've got two people on the railroad track on the little on the little platform and you're like both doing the thing like bumping the little metal thing that makes it go you know and when one person like has their arms up the other person has their arms down like that is what making a podcast with another person is like so you never have to bring fully bring 100% of the energy which for me is is integral to making this podcast be a reality if i had to do all of this work by myself even if i had the time and energy to do all that work emotionally that would feel too difficult collaborate yo yeah i feel the same way i think if i did it by myself and i i might eventually have did it by myself if nobody ever asked me to be on a podcast because i was just dying to be one or be on one it would not be of the quality and standard that it is now because quality and standard for me is just like like another um shackle sometimes and it's a it's a thought i need to change or i would like to change but yeah uh make sure that when you're doing it that you're doing it with somebody who is better than you in some ways and i'm not saying iris is totally better than me that's a very i don't like those statements better than me but she's better than me at like quality control and catching the small things. Whereas I think I'm probably better at, yeah, let's just get it done kind of a thing. And we we have a very... And spreadsheets. I once had a fight with a, with a man and I said, my spreadsheets will beat your spreadsheets ass. And it was a serious fight and he was not happy with me. Uh, but they still do. Yeah, I'm really good at spreadsheets. So it's also about just making sure that when you're in the room, Don't be in the room because you're the smartest person there. Make sure that the other person is smarter than you in different ways because that's collaboration. Otherwise, it's just about your ego. Um, And I listen to some podcasts and I feel that way, that somebody definitely feels that what they have to say is more important. And therefore, the the person that they got is just kind of like their, I don't want to say lackey, but it feels like that, you know, just their like kind of emotional support. Um, And the podcast shouldn't be, uh, Jen and Joe, it should just be Jen. And Joe, let Joe out of his box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's all we have time for today, folks. I would like to say thank you for all of your questions. Thank you for taking the time to type them out, send them to us, allowing us to interpret them and also answer them. If we got anything horribly wrong, please send Iris a very angry email. <laughs> <laughs> But if we got them right, uh, note that you can send us any feedback on Not A Real Artist podcast at gmail.com with any of your questions, insights, or just to say hello. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow this podcast on your preferred platform, or if you enjoyed this episode, you can review and rate us. Uh, I also just want to say that we didn't get to all the questions that we that were submitted. Uh, we just want to say thank you so much and sorry if we didn't answer your question maybe we will do so in a future episode so we have come to the end of our second season which is wild i can't believe we have two seasons of a podcast under our belt and out there and you've listened to it i mean i hope you've listened to it get the fuck out if you haven't i mean go and listen (laughs) 
if you haven't. So thank you so much for being with us and, and listening to us for two whole seasons. It's just amazing. And we're really so grateful for your support, for your interest, uh, for your encouragement, uh, and also for your interaction, the comments that you're sending us, the emails that we've received. I really appreciate it. And it's just, you know, it's it blows my mind. We're going to be taking a little break and then we will be back with season three, which we have been already pre-producing and producing and working hard on. It's going to be very exciting. It's going to be a little bit different than what you've been used to for the last couple of seasons, because basically we were um, tired of listening to our own voices a little bit, and we decided that we were going to start having conversations with people that we find interesting. If you want to find out who we find interesting and uh, all the little nuggets of wisdom that they have been sharing with us, then you will have to check in with us when we release season three. It will be coming to a podcast platform near you at some point in the near future. Until then, hold on to your underwear. Bye. So strap in. Happy. Enjoy the rest of your retirement. Goodbye. (laughs) Crikey, what did I want to say? That felt so important. Because I'm such a piece of shit sometimes. Don't put that in the podcast. People need to think that I think I'm great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, you go first. No, you go first. Okay. I know you. Tomorrow I thought that was so hilarious and then I spat all over my keyboard. (laughs) Okay. Keeping it real, folks. Keeping it real.